Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. You can be turning in your Bible to the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 9. Uh, last week, we talked about the conversion of Paul, Saul of Tarlis, breathing threats and murderers, and yet Jesus had his eye on him. And uh, before, the, before we were finished last week, Paul had received Jesus. You think about that. He was, uh, going, he, uh, was saved, or he was touched by a man by the name of Ananias. And it's um, Jared here, who's on the Congos this morning, he was telling me, uh, on the street called Straight, where Ananias was told to go uh, and pray for uh, Peter, or pray for Paul, uh, Jared had been there. He's been on that street called Straight. In fact, he's got another drum, not the one he used today, that he bought there. Kind of cool, so I thought that was neat. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue on in chapter 9, but we're coming to a bit of a hinge, if you will. It's in the middle of a chapter of your Bible, the way that it's laid out, but the way that Luke recorded it, we're moving through the Scriptures according to the outline that we received in chapter 1, verse 8, that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit, that you might be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which they were, Judea, the area right around Jerusalem, Samaria, we saw Philip go up to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we're now watching as the gospel moves from Jerusalem in chapter 6 and then and 7 in chapter 8, Philip goes up to Samaria and revival breaks out that way. Chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, the great threat to the church, is neutralized. Uh, actually, more than neutralized, he becomes a great evangelist, right? And in, in verse 31 of Acts, of Acts chapter 9, this summary statement we read, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. They were built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. What a beautiful place to be in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Just filled with awe and reverence and respect. Sometimes to the point that I can't even speak. I don't even know what to say. And then on the same, same Lord, same God, same Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that comfort and that peace, it just comes from knowing that the war is over. God loves me. I'm a child of God, and I'm going to heaven. And, that, and in that, the church grew. Now we're going to see a pivot away from Paul. We'll pick him up in a, in a little bit here in the book of Acts, but we're going to come back to Peter now. Um, it says in verse 32, Now it came to pass, as Peter through, went throughout all parts of the country, he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. We, we last heard from him in chapter 8 at verse 25, after uh, telling Simon the sorcerer, um, you can't buy Jesus, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 25 of 8 it says, So when Peter and John, they had testified and preached the word of the Lord. They returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 32, and it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. And I just kind of did a little emphasis on that, because this is very 
missional. This is very missionary. This is very much going out in the name and the power in the call of Jesus Christ to reach the lost. And this really is the first missionary journey we read about in the book of Acts, although we're most familiar with Paul and his three missionary journeys, but certainly these guys are out on the field and they're bringing the good news. They're bringing the gospel where they go and people are receiving, the church is multiplying, uh, and it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. So Peter, he went through all the country and he came down, he, he came to the saints who dwell in Lydda. Last week we saw the first time the word saints was used in the New Testament, those who are separated to God, those who have been called out of darkness and into His marvelous light, children of God through the Holy Spirit, just heaven-bound, the saints that were in Lydda. Now, Lydda is a town that sits um, at the mouth of the canyon as you come down off of Jerusalem towards the Mediterranean coast. There's a plain along the Mediterranean, and then right as you go up into the hills at the mouth of the canyon that heads up to Jerusalem was the city, or is the city, of, of Joppa. Now, um, Joppa. It was uh, a, a, a town and a city. Uh, Josephus, the historian, writes of it that it was, it was a town, uh, but like a city. Okay, It was little, but it was a regional hub, much as Minicasha much as Burley would be a regional hub. It's, you know, in most people's books, Burley doesn't really make the charts, you know. Our area here is something that I think to a good reason that people don't know about. Even when I go up into the Treasure Valley and I'm visiting with people, I tell them, well, I'm from down at Rupert or Burley, and they're like, that's in Idaho? You know, not all, but many, right? And it's kind of nice being off the charts. Well, this is, this is um, Lydda, okay? There he, there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. And then he rose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. I imagine so. An amazing thing. So this man is paralyzed and he can't get up out of bed. It's very similar to a couple of times where Jesus would reach out to people and tell them, you know, the one guy, they brought him to the roof. They tore the roof off and laid him, laid him down on ropes in the middle of Jesus, and he, and he tells them, your sins are forgiven you. Everybody goes, you can't forgive sins. And he goes, what's easier, to forgive sins or tell this man to be whole? And he said, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And he did, proving that Jesus not only can forgive sins and make us whole spiritually, but he can physically heal us. And, and so, same thing's happening with Peter now, right? And uh, just a beautiful thing. And we see, we're going to see the same thing happening with Paul. And Luke has kind of orchestrated this between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both of which he wrote. We're going to see that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father, continue the same work that they did from the beginning in creation, Genesis chapter 1, all the way into eternity. And so you're going to see the things Jesus did, Peter's going to do, then we see the things Peter did, Paul is going to do, and the reality is these things continue to happen in the church to this very day. God is alive. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So kind of fun watching this. We, and you can imagine Aeneas, right? Um, 
as he's healed and he goes around Lydda and it says, and everyone uh, at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. You know, he became a living epistle, a walking Bible. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 2, he says, you are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle or a letter of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, the heart. And this is the picture, that God saves us that we will serve Him, right? Uh, we're not saved to just sit, we're saved to serve, to go out into the world and share the good news. I was once lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. I was crippled, now I'm healed. I was hell-bound, now I'm heaven-bound, hallelujah. We become walking Bibles, living epistles. And, and this is what we're seeing, this picture, this missionary endeavor going out from Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. People are just going out and telling them what Jesus did for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you have a my Jesus? Do you have a story? Do you, do you have a relationship with Jesus that you can then introduce people to Him? Come on over to my place. I'm going to tell you about my Jesus. And you're going to see it in your life, your walk, your talk. And this is what's going on here. It's, it's beautiful. Well, it continues in verse 36. At Joppa, now this is a, a, a city, it's uh, down on the seacoast, right in the area of Tel Aviv. Uh, uh, the big city on the coast in Israel today, Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Now, either way you translate it, what it means is gazelle. And it's really beautiful, right, to be named after such a graceful animal, such a beautiful animal, so gracious. And so uh, you can pick whichever, either name you like, Tabitha or Dorcas. Tabitha would be in the Greek, and then uh, Dorcas would be in the Aramaic, the tongue of the people that day. Um, funny, just because of our silly culture, means nothing in the Bible here. But today, if I say Dorcas, people go, that sounds like a word I was not supposed to call people. <laughs> so we like Tabitha. So that's what I'm going to use. But they both mean gazelle. Just beautiful. Okay. So there's this certain disciple. That means she's a methetes. She's a learner. She's a student. She's a follower of Jesus. She's one of us. Okay. Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas, gazelle. This woman is full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. What a reputation. Would people say that about you? If I said, you know, because I do this all the time, I'm talking to you, and, and, and I'll be talking to one of you about somebody else in the church, and you're like, I'm not sure I know that person. How many of you guys know everybody here by name? Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But if I told you, oh, you know, the one full of good works and charitable deeds, would you go, oh, yeah, I know them. Still nothing? <laughs> well, at any rate, however you would slice it or dice it, this is somebody who was well known because they were a living epistle, because they were a testimony to the grace of God in their life, uh, good works and charitable deeds. But, verse 37, it happened in those days that she became sick and died. 
Oh, that's sad. Precious in the eyes of the Lord are the death of his, of his saints, okay? Whenever any one of us passes from this earth who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, instantly we go to be in the presence of God. And, and it's a beautiful thing. So we don't grieve as the world who has no hope of eternal life with God, but nevertheless, it leaves a hole in our heart. There's a void where that person used to be, you know, and, and there's an emptiness, and that's, that's okay, you know. That's, that's really a beautiful thing. It's a testimony. Every time you feel that ache, they're still there. You still carry them with you. And this is what happened. In those days, she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, so it's only about uh, 12 miles down to the seacoast to Joppa from Lydda, and that's, remember, where Peter was. He just healed Aeneas there. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Now, it's interesting, and you might miss this in reading this. It says that they had washed her body and laid her in an upper room. Two things that you might gather from this, that she had an upper room, that she was prosperous and she had a home, upper rooms... Uh, were a two-story building, and, and even in today, if you have a two-story building, a lot of times that's a sign that you have a little bit more, right? <laughs> Your house is two stories, um, and she would have had that going on besides her reputation, but that they washed her body and then just left it in the upper room, kind of like a viewing. It's not uncommon in our day and age. We read in Ezekiel um, 16 that when a baby is born, they would rub the body with salt and prepare the baby and everything. They would do something similar with, with uh, a body, a deceased uh, member of the family, prepare them for burial. But even to this day in Israel, people generally are born before the sun goes down on the day they die. So you die this morning, you will be buried before sunfall, sunset, right? That's kind of the, the tradition there. So why wasn't this lady buried? She died. Why don't we bury her? Well, I think we get the story here. The reputation of Peter is starting to spread. You know, we already know wherever his shadow fell, people got healed and, and different things like this. And so... Uh, they, they, they called and they said, Peter, you need to come here right away. Why? What do you think Peter's going to do? This lady's dead. Now, now I don't want to get too morose, but you understand fundamentals of death. When life ceases in the body, the body goes through different phases. Uh, rigor mortis, lividity, uh, cellular breakdown, different things like this, okay? And within the time frame here, for them to get down to Joppa, it's about a day's journey, and get back from Joppa, we're looking at about 48 hours. So she's not just like swooning, okay? It's not just like she passed out. She's dead. In fact, Jesus had the same experience with his disciples when his dear friend Lazarus passed away, and he delayed in his coming. And when they finally got to the tomb and Jesus said, roll away the stone, they said, oh, Lord, you know, he stinketh. <laughs> we don't want to do that, he, you know. <laughs> He's dead and been dead for a little while. Well, get Peter. I'm like, don't you love it when people know that you're a Christian and there's a crisis 
And so you get the phone call. Mike, can you come and pray for this guy? What happened? I don't know. He was on the highway. He got decapitated, and we need to see if we can. Really? Yeah, I, I made that up, obviously. But we get called as though we're, we, somehow you expect me to do this. What did Jesus say to Ananias? He said, Jesus the Christ has healed you. And we have to understand all healing comes through Jesus Christ. And while there is a gift of healing that God, through His Holy Spirit, can manifest in the life of a believer as He pleases according to His timing and His will, it's not something we can take unto ourselves. Nevertheless, Peter has demonstrated that. So what does we natural human beings reach out? Hey, get Pete. Verse 39, then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the windows stood, widows, I'm sorry, stood by him weeping and showing tunics of the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. That's right. Typical funeral, Middle Eastern funeral. They're wailing, and all kinds of noise. Funerals in the Middle East are noisy. They're not solemn and quiet. Everybody's grieving loud, and, 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 and they've got all these sweaters and tunics. Look, she knit this for me, and, and everybody's just going on about what a blessed person she was. And, and look, we've got testimony of it. What is our legacy, I wonder? We can see what Tabitha's legacy would be. What would people say about us when we pass, you know? And they would all come and gather and have a uh, celebration of life. What are they going to say about us? Kind of interesting thing. Well, you can start working on that today. Get a knitting needle and start making people sweaters. Or, or whatever God would put on your heart, what is it that you have that you can give? Because certainly the legacy of Dorcas Tabitha is that she was a servant and she was very giving and very generous and thought of others. And I just think that's a beautiful testimony. And so they're, they're crying, verse 40, but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Now, how long has she been dead? couple days, okay? This is not just some kind of, oh, the door opened and the fresh air revived her, okay? This is a flat-out, absolute miracle, right? It's interesting, where would Peter get this idea? <laughs> Two different places we see that Peter was with Jesus, with Jairus, the uh, synagogue leader's daughter. She died. They put everybody out, but Peter, James, and John were there. And what, you remember what Peter said to Jairus' daughter? Talitha kumi. Talitha and Tabitha, they sound almost the same. Uh, basically, Talitha, little lamb, arise, is what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter. And here, Peter, it's Tabitha, but Tabitha, Tabitha kumi. Tabitha, get up. And she did, right? We also see Jesus doing this with the, the son, or the, the, the widow of Nain when her son died. Peter also saw that happen again. So, no doubt, what does Peter do? He does what he saw Jesus do, right? You, that, I love that band that, that became so popular. I, it's almost fallen out of common usage. I don't know too many people would know what it is, but the WWJD. What does WWJD mean? What would Jesus do? And what a wonderful way to live our life. 
everything, every, every crossroad that we come, every fork in the road, hmm, what would Jesus do? Well, Peter, he does what Jesus does, and by following Jesus, Tabitha arises. It's absolutely amazing. Then he, it says, verse 31, then he gave her his hand, lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Man, can you imagine? What would that do for your faith? What would that do for your faith? If somebody died in this room right now, and we called the paramedics, 911 rolled, and they're here, and they wheel them out, and then they're here next Sunday, and you saw them die. We all saw them die. There's no pulse, no respiration, bodies going cold. They're dead, and they're alive. What would that do for you? Would that change you a little bit? I mean, real, what are you going to do with that? What, what are you going to do with that? Well, for what it's worth, look at your neighbor and go, wow. Come on, look at your neighbor and go, wow. <laughs> Jesus says, Recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 5, at verse 24, most assuredly, that's the old King Jimmy, verily, verily, truth, truth, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Have you heard his word? Do you believe? You have been born again. You have died to the old man and have been born in the spirit. And just as Tabitha came to life, we are living epistles and testimony of the work of Jesus Christ, what he can do in a sinner and a wretch like me. But I'm not that man. That man is gone. All things have become old. Behold, all things are new. I'm a new creature in Christ. And so it should touch our lives. When we witness to people, we share Jesus with people. People who are dead in their trespasses and sin. They're swirling around the toilet bowl of life. You know, and just it's just a matter of time and they'll be gone. And we bring hope. We bring healing. We bring Jesus. And they look at that. And in the weakest, most feeble prayer, because they're so close to death, they just say, Jesus, if you're real, save me. And they are changed. Have you seen that? Have you witnessed that? That is passing from death into life. And once you have shared your faith with a sinner and they see Jesus and they receive Jesus, they want to have what you've got. They want to hear what it's heard about. It's hard to figure out and it really comes down to just faith. You've been saved 
by grace. We talked about that at communion this morning. 2,000 years ago, by the grace of God, Jesus Christ bled on that cross to pay your sin debt. You are now children of God if you will believe and receive it. All you have to do is receive it. It's simple. It's not easy because you got to get yourself out of the way. You're so full of yourself, so full of your wisdom, so full of who you think you are, and you're trying to riddle it all out, and you just have to stop and say, I have to become like a child. I have to accept this on faith. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's not rocket science, but it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And so, (laughs) no doubt... Lydda's all on fire. Joppa's all on fire. Uh, She gave him his hand and presented him to the saints, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Hallelujah. Moving on, verse 43. So it was, he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon the Tanner. You could unpack a whole sermon on that verse alone, couldn't you? Could you? I could, (laughs) but I'm kind of kooky that way, okay? But it's interesting. Here's Peter, right? In some traditions of the church, they look to him as the first pope, the leader, everybody. And truly, in Peter's day, the church in Jerusalem did look to Peter for leadership. You know, he's the big kahuna. He's the big cheese. Now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, next best thing is Pete. At least that's what it is in the mind of a lot of people, right? That's how they would view this. And Peter is now staying in Joppa many days with a guy named Simon. That's okay. But he's a tanner. Now, a tanner is somebody who tans hides, tans skin, right? And good Jews, according to the scriptures, would be defiled or they would be unclean if they touched the carcass of dead animals. This is what the guy does every single day. In fact, they had laws in Israel in these days that the tanner would have to live at least 50 yards out of town so he couldn't, and, and, and downwind. And it was even part of the law that if a gal married a guy who was a tanner but didn't know he was a tanner, it was considered grounds for divorce for her to get out of the marriage because he lied to me and he's defiled. In fact, even if you were married and your husband decided he's going to pick up a side hustle and he becomes a tanner, that was still grounds for divorce because he's brought defilement into our family. This is how Tanners were looked down upon. Now, all these hides and flesh, you know, and the way that they would cure them would have a certain aroma, (laughs) a certain odor that would go with hanging out with a tanner. And now here's Pete, big Pete. He's the man. And he's staying with a tanner. What's happening here? It's a really good question. Because what is happening here is God is preparing to move His Word, His Gospel, His hope out beyond Jerusalem, Judea, 
and Samaria to the very ends of the earth, and he's starting to prepare Peter's heart. The passage we're coming into right now is often referred to as the conversion of Cornelius and his family. But you could equally call it the conversion of Peter because he's going to have to cross some big cross-cultural divides to get to be where God needs him to be witnesses to all the world. And it starts with hanging out at the tanner's house. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. So now we meet this guy, Cornelius. It says that he was uh, a, um, a centurion of the Inta Italian regiment. When Vespasian came into Israel in that time, he brought three legions of troops. A legion would be 6,000 troops. So he brought 18,000 troops, and they based themselves in Caesarea. There's several Caesareas because they're named after Caesar, and so they like to name cities after Caesar, but this one is on the sea coast. That's why it's called Caesarea Maritima, okay? This Caesarea Maritima is up north of the coast uh, from where we, we were started here, um, in Joppa, and there's a centurion, okay? Now, that centurion, you can see the word century in that. It means he would be a, a commander over a hundred, right? Not a legion of 6,000 or a cohort of 600. There was actually an Italian regiment. These are guys that are Itali Italian, pure blood, hardcore, almost you could say special ops of the Roman regiments, and he is now it's like a master sergeant, over a hundred men, okay? Interesting thing, every single time you look in the scriptures and it's recorded something about a centurion, one of these uh, soldiers, they are always treated with the highest regard and honor. There's never a disparaging word about these guys. These are men of honor, integrity. They're, they're the kind of guy you want to have as a friend. But as a Jew, they're the occupying force. They represent everything wrong with the world. And it's a real tug of war. Like I said, this is a cross-cultural battle being set up here. Um, it's interesting to go to Caesarea up on the, course, uh, uh, on the coast of Israel, north of Haifa. Um, Cheryl and I have had the blessing of being there. In fact, I sent a video around to some of you guys just over the holidays of a group of people that gathered in the amphitheater at Caesarea, a thousand Israelites, and they brought all their different musical instruments and they were singing, and they were singing for the conflict in Gaza and seeking peace. It's a powerful video, but we've been to there, the amphitheater in Caesarea. In fact, it's something that you couldn't have gone to several decades ago. In 1970, Egypt started on a project to build electricity. They bought the, built the Aswan Dam on the uh, Nile River in Egypt. And what it ended up doing was it controlled the silt and a whole lot less silt flowed into the Mediterranean. That silt, as it migrated north in the currents up towards Israel, would become sand. And there were sand dunes all across that part of the coast. And while people knew where Caesarea Maritima was, they couldn't really see it very well. 
And then when they built the dam and the silt went down, all of a sudden the sand dunes on the coast started lowering. And one day a guy in a helicopter looks down and goes, there's something in the sand dune. They started excavating it, and right there on the coast was this amphitheater. Also, there's a hippodrome, which is a horse racetrack. And there was a harbor, and it's amazing. King Herod at the time, when he established Caesarea Philippi, even the pilings for the piers in the harbor were poured with cement underwater back in their day. And it's an engineering marvel. People still haven't figured out, how did they do that? But it's there, right? And in fact, there's an inscription there in Caesarea Philippi of the name Pontius Pilate. And for so many years, until the Aswan Dam and the the silt of the Nile and the, the sand dunes going away, people were arguing. There really is no historical record of Pontius Pilate. And then all of a sudden, the sands of time literally revealed, there it is, Pontius Pilate on a stone. And so this is all going on. This was the capital of Rome away from Rome, okay? When you would come into Israel, into that part of the land, that region, that province, this is where everybody would set up camp, okay? And so here's Cornelius of the elite Italian regiment, a commander of a hundred people. And it says in verse 2, he's a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Now, we see this, you know, the centurion that came to Jesus and said, my servant is not feeling well. And Jesus said, well, you know, and he says, you don't even need to come and visit Jesus. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And as he went away and we find out the servant was healed that very hour, Jesus would say to his disciples all gathered, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. So certainly there are foreigners not Jew, Gentiles, who recognize above the pantheon of the Roman gods, the Zeuses, the Hermes, the Mercuries, and all these different gods the Romans would worship, they recognize the true and living God, Yahweh God, and they feared Him. They recognize He is the true supreme God, and they they were called God-fearers. And His conviction was such that not just Him, but His whole household, everybody there, He would lead them in worship and study and reverence and respect of this God, of the Jews, Yahweh God. So he's a devout man. He feared God with all his household. And he didn't just say it, but he did it. He gave generously alms to the people. This word people is the word laos in the Greek. Uh, But really what it's, it's talking about is the common people. He didn't give to promote himself or by rank, or position, or privilege, or prestige. That's not why he gave. He gave because he saw needs. And because of the needs, he gave. He didn't let the left hand know what the right hand's doing, but he was a man who was generous to those in need around him. So he gave to the people and prayed to God always. This is his heart. He just walks with God every day. It says about the ninth hour, this is Roman reckoning in time, which starts at 6 a.m. or sunrise. So the ninth hour is about 3 in the afternoon. This would be the hour of incense. It's one of the three times of prayer, 9, 12, and 3. This is the time of prayer in the afternoon. It says at the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. Now that's a trip right there. Seeing an angel, that's a trip. 
when the angel knows your name? Oh boy, have we met? How is it that you know my name? Well, obviously God knows everybody's name, sinner, non-sinner, and here's a person just going about doing wonderful things for the kingdom of God, not a Jew, but God knows. Cornelius, verse 4, and when he observed him, he was afraid, right? This hardened soldier, somebody who worked his way up through the ranks. A centurion wasn't somebody who got appointed that because he was uh, some politician's son. This is a guy who started at as a grunt and worked him way, his way up, which means he's a hardened soldier, but when he sees this, he's afraid. And this is wise. This is that fear of God. We just read about it with the church. It's part of how we grow. That tremendous respect and reverence for the Lord. He observed him and was afraid, and he said, what is it, Lord? Remember that. What did he say? Okay. He said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up to me as a memorial before God. Cornelius, God sees you. Cornelius, God knows you. Cornelius, you're already got a reputation in heaven. That's a pretty good deal. Talk about our legacy, our Tabitha and our sweaters, you know. In heaven, we already know about this guy. Verse 5. He says, now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose name, surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And so now this angel comes to Cornelius, a devout man, a fearer of God, uh, almsgiver, a good guy, and he says, call for Peter. He's going to come, and when he gets here, he'll tell you what you should do. Well, that's a pretty big order. Never met the guy, don't know anything about him. Um, but he'll tell you what you should do. Um, verse 7, and when the angel spoke to him, he had, the angel who had spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. He heard, just like a good soldier, he obeyed. He just did it. At the word of the angel, he obeyed. Verse 9, now, it's about a 30-mile journey from Joppa near Tel Aviv to north of Haifa, Caesarea Maritima. So, a 30-mile journey. Uh, it'd be several days' journey. Verse 9, the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up onto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Okay, I just gave you a little lesson on timekeeping in ancient Israel, Roman timekeeping. What is the sixth hour? It's lunchtime. Yeah. It's lunchtime, it's noon, okay? He went up in the house top about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Dinner's not ready yet. Okay. You know, have you ever been hangry? You're hungry and you get out of sorts. Well, Peter, instead of doing that, he goes and prays. Not a bad idea. That fasting and prayer thing, I think I've heard about it somewhere. He fell into a trance, and he saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners ascending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air, and a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> Amen, right? <laughs> One of my hunting buddies there. It's funny, 
uh, Calvary Chapel of Tooele, which is out on the Nevada-Utah border out by Salt Lake. Uh, dear friends of ours, a pastor of that church. They have a ministry called the um, Acts 1013 ministry, and it's their hunting ministry. <laughs> Guys, I want to go out, rise, kill, and eat, right? So, <laughs> at any rate, he sees his vision, and then he hears the Holy Spirit speak to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. Now, this isn't the first time Peter has said, not so, Lord. Peter gets confused sometimes in what the word Lord means. Lord is, you're my boss. Whatever you say goes. Whatever you say goes, you are kurios in the Greek is master. You're the master. You're the Lord. And you can't say, no, master, I'm not going to do that. That's not how it works. But Peter has a tendency to get confused. Not so, Lord. Now, he's got his reasons, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And as a good Jew, I'm sure he hadn't. There's all kinds of dietary prescriptions in the scriptures for thou shall and thou shall not eat. Things like things which chew the cub, cut and are cloven hooved, or certain types of fish or whatever, right? Uh, Leviticus 11 has a list. It's a fun list to read. You're not allowed to have camels, no gnats, no lobster, no bacon, no badgers, no bats. Okay, they're all off the list. And Peter's like, yeah, I never had a bat. I'm good. I'm not going to do that. I'm not eating one of those things, right? Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. Verse 15, and a voice spoke to him again the second time. What God has cleansed or made clean, you must not call common or non-kosher. Kosher is the term for things that are allowed by scriptures. If it's not kosher, it's not allowed. But Jesus, or the, the, God says to Peter here in this vision, if I've cleansed it, then it's good for you to eat. Um, Jesus would teach this in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it says in verse 10 of chapter 15, when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. He had been accused by the Pharisees of eating with unwashed hands and defiling the meal. And Jesus says, it's not the food that doesn't defile you, that doesn't make you unholy or impure or ritually um, somehow blemished. It's not what you eat. And fundamentally, he'll say here, um, do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? You're following this? You have an alimentary canal. It starts here. It exits somewhere over there. And whatever comes in here goes out there. Okay? Whatever enters a man... It's eliminated. It's not what goes in, he would say, um, but those things which proceed out of the mouth, not go in the mouth, but go out of the mouth. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. And he goes through a list of things that would defile a person. Paul would pick up on this in his letter to the Romans in chapter 14. He would say, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things. There's Dallas. Okay? 
but he who is weak eats only vegetables. I won't name that person. Verse 3, <laughs> let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or fall. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. He goes on to say in verse 6 of Romans 14, He who observes a day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe a day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. And basically, what we hear see Jesus here teaching, what we see Paul teaching, and what we see now Peter experiencing on the rooftop is God saying, that rule, that rule about kosher, it's no longer binding. This is a new covenant. It's between you and God. It's you and your conscience. If your conscience tells you that big, thick slabs of chocolate cake are not kosher, then you should obey your conscience. <laughs> you've, you've got to work this out with God. Now, all these rules, many of them, there's great dietary, sanitary health reasons why you would abstain from certain things, and, 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 and you can get great health from that, but fundamentally, this is between you and God, and that's basically what that is saying, but it, there's way, way more to it than just that. God is setting Peter up to meet with Cornelius. He's breaking him down in his misplaced beliefs in what the scriptures would teach. So, this was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven, okay? When God tells you something, do you obey? What about when He tells you again? What, he, what about when He tells you again, again? You can take great comfort in Pete. It took him a little while sometimes to pick up on these things. Verse 17, now while Peter wondered, literally he was torn asunder. His mind was as absolutely cannot riddle this out. I know the scriptures. I know that's not right. And this vision from heaven is telling me I can. And I, I don't know what to do. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had said meant, so he's wondering. God is setting him up. I've already given you the vision. I don't know what it means. And as this happens, <laughs> behold, at just at that right time, God's speed. Not too fast, not too slow, just right. Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. So he's still in this, trying to figure it out. And, and God speaks to him in that still small voice. There's three guys that are looking for you. And I'm up on the roof. I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. And what's that vision all about? I don't understand. And somebody's looking for me? Real, what? What? Right? And all that. In verse 20, arise therefore, go down, go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And sure enough, there they are at the bottom at the gate saying, is Peter here? And Peter's going, that's me. Wow, God, divine appointment. Sounds like Philip, 
and the Ethiopian eunuch. This sounds like so many places when you look up and all of a sudden, there you are right in front of where you're supposed to be. How did that happen? How does God do that? Well, He's God. It's no problem for Him, right? But so how, how, how much we don't catch it. So God gave Peter a special setup so that he wouldn't miss it. He said, arise there, go with them, doubting nothing. And that word for doubting nothing is making no distinctions. In fact, it's, it's literally without prejudice because there's going to be racial, religious prejudice coming up in his heart right now. Verse 21, then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am him whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion. And now they go through the list. A just man, one who fears God. He has a good reputation among the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed. Okay, so God told him, divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them, and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Big, big deal right here. They accompanied him, and um, he should have never even let him in the house. Generally speaking, a Jew meeting a Gentile, if they were, whatever reason, said, came to the door, they said, let's go outside and talk in the street. I'm not going to have you come in my house. You're going to defile my house. We don't have anything to do with you. But Peter invites them in, and then he goes on the way up there. Verse 24, And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. So Cornelius really is a man of great faith. He sent the guys away, and then he got all his family, and everybody goes, We're going to have a guest speaker here. You guys need to be here. And he had... He had done something with his faith. Not only did he send the men, he gathered the crowd. He was anticipating God was going to do what God said he was going to do. That's faith, right? And so um, then he comes and worships him, and it's like, no, you know, Peter says, I'm not like that. We're going to see that again in the book of Acts. Here in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are going to be going into uh, town, and, and they're going to worship him as though they're the, the gods Zeus and uh, Hermes, and it's going to lead to a whole bunch of things. John the Apostle, he has this experience in uh, the revelation of, of Jesus Christ in chapter 19, where John falls down and worships the angel, and the angel says, don't, don't worship me. And so we see angels don't receive worship. People should never receive worship. Only God should receive worship. And yet we see in the scriptures in John chapter 9, in verse 35 and 38, after Jesus had healed a blind man, born from birth, his parents, when they were accused by the, the uh, synagogue of, well, what's going on here? They said, you better ask him. They, didn't, they washed their hands of him. This guy gets his sight back, and he ends up being excommunicated. And in John 9, 35, when Jesus heard they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to them, do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he, that man healed from blindness, said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus receives worship. Angels don't receive worship. Men don't receive worship. Why can't Jesus receive worship? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God, okay? But here... 
Cornelius and, and uh, Peter, they have this moment, don't worship, don't worship me. Verse 28, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation, okay? This cultural barrier. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Um, a beautiful passage in Ephesians in chapter 2 in verse 11 Paul writes, says, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called the uncircumcision, you uncircumcised Philistine, by what is called the circumcision, the Jews, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're all one in Christ. And Peter says, you know I'm not supposed to do this, but God's shown me. I'm not supposed to call common what God has already cleansed. Verse 29, therefore, come. I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? So Cornelius said, Four days ago, and he, he recounts the story, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. We've already read in verse 3, that was an angel. And said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have, are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes to you, he will speak to you. This is a very interesting thing. When God gives you a word, I've had people come up to me and say, I've received a word from the Lord for you, Mike. I'm like, oh, really? This is interesting. I receive what they say in that I hear it, and then I wait for confirmation. I look for somebody else to say that, because there are some people that the things they say have never come to pass. It's not from the Lord. But if the Lord is speaking a truth to you, I always look for confirmation, especially husbands and wives. <laughs> if God is speaking something to one of you, He will speak it to both of you. And if He hasn't spoken it to both of you yet, we can put that one on hold until we both hear from the Lord. In this case, clearly, God is speaking to Cornelius and God is speaking to Peter. This is God and we're seeing the fruit of it right before our very eyes, okay? Um, Verse 32, send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. His lodging is the house of Simon by the tanner, by the sea. You know, all the details. Verse 33, so I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Wow. I'm looking at the clock, and it's time to stop. This is the gospel. Cornelius is going to unload the gospel on, I mean Cornelius, Peter is going to share the gospel with Cornelius, and this is going to be the beginning of the gospel going to all the world, all different people groups. I am going to stop there because I can hear babies crying. I know our Sunday school teachers would really love it if I wrapped it up right now. <laughs> so we will. We will pick up next week with Peter's message to Cornelius. But in the meantime, let's think about what we've seen and heard. Yeah, come on up, Frankie. Um, God is moving. As he had said, as the word had declared, you will be filled 
with power. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they were in Judea and they were in Samaria. They were and in all the world. And we are. We are here because of chapter 10, right? Any one of us that wasn't born Jewish has this passage to be grateful for. I'm so grateful for Peter and his obedience, Cornelius and his obedience. Can you imagine if one of them had said, not so, Lord? Actually, one of them did, didn't they? And God had to work him over a little bit. But even, even those reluctant prophets, right, those missionaries that really <laughs> weren't ready to go. Do, do you remember where, where was Peter when God spoke to him on that rooftop? Do you remember what city he was in? Joppa. Joppa. Any Bible college students in here? Does Joppa jump out from the scriptures anyplace else that you know of? Joppa is the city that Jonah ran away to when God called him to preach to the Gentiles, to the Ninevites. Basically, Nineveh is ISIS. And that's who they were in that day. And God told Jonah, You're, I'm sending you to ISIS. I'm sending you to Nineveh. And, and Jonah goes, nah, and he went the other way. He went to Joppa, got on a boat, ran as far as he could from God. Storm came up, he admitted, it's me. God's got my number. They throw him overboard, and sure enough, the storm stops. A big fish eats him. Three days later, barfs him up on the shore. He marches into Nineveh, and he walks down the road from one side of the 40 days, and then comes destruction. Y'all are going to burn. You got it coming, and you deserve it. And I'm here to tell you before it happens. And he's all bitter with the Ninevites, hates them. And then he goes up on the hillside. You know, the king says, oh, we ought to repent. And he tells everybody in the kingdom, repent. Even have your animals repent. It's the greatest single mass revival recorded in all of human history. Nineveh, millions of people, just because of this bitter prophet. Then he goes up on a hill, and he's so mad at God. I knew if you sent me here, you're going to save them. And he just sat down on the hill to watch and wait to see what would happen to them. He just couldn't wait to just, okay, fire, brimstone, bring it, God. And he sat on that hill. God had to have a little powwow with him. In Jonah, chapter 4, God says, man, there's... There's children. They don't even know their right hand from their left hand. Should I be killing them? These people don't know better. Should I be killing them? And he gets all in his huff and a puff, and he builds this little hut and sits up on the hill. And then overnight, a plant grows up and gives him shade. <gasps> oh, thank you, God, for the shade. It was so hot out here. I was just roasting. And then God allows the plant to die. And then, oh, God, what happened to my plant? It was giving me such great shade. And God says, you're worried about a plant and shade. Should I not save these millions of people? And I just look at what it says here in Jonah chapter 4. I'm just going to read verses 9 through 10. 
Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Obviously not. God grew it and God can take it away and it's just a stupid plant. It was a blessing, but is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, is it right for me to be angry? Or, or Jonah's resp- reply to that. God says, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. This is how bitter this guy is. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and much livestock? There's 120,000 children, not to count all the parents and everybody. Shouldn't I have pity on them? It's the same story. Here is Peter. He's in Joppa. He could have gone on a boat and says, I'm not going to Cornelius' house. I'm not going to let the Gentiles come into my house. I'm not going to have anything to do with those people. Those people. Who are your those people? LGBTQ+. Plus? <laughs> Republicans? Democrats? There's one race. It's the human race. And God died for all the world, including you and me. What right do we have to withhold His grace from anybody. It's a big, I don't know, it's almost like elephant to chew on. (laughs) Not so, Lord, I'm not eating that. Oh, if you'd have given me a bat, I think I could have choked it down. But an elephant? You want me to talk to that one? Your skin curdles. And God says, yeah. This is what the kingdom of heaven is all about. I know you know this, and it feels like I'm preaching at you. I don't mean to be preaching at you. (laughs) You know what's happening? I'm getting preached at. The Holy Ghost is working me. I got issues, and I need to come transparent before God and say, Lord, forgive me if I look at a person and prejudge them. I'm prejudiced to them. Help me, Lord. Help me break down that middle wall of separation. Help me break down that barrier. I need the blood of Jesus Christ. Cover me, cleanse me, heal me, use me. Amen? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much for the work that you did through Peter. Of all the people in all of human history, you picked him. And I'm sure he's thinking, you picked me, God? But that we could see what we look like. Yes, you can use us to heal a lame man, to bring to life those who have, are dead, to bring your good news to people we don't even like. Only by the blood, only by the power of your Holy Spirit, but by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We are witnesses dying to ourselves and sharing you. 
with a lost and dying world. Help us now go forward in your name. And I would pray a special prayer this morning, Lord, as we dismiss, that you would give every soul in this room an opportunity to cross that divide and share you with somebody they would never have done it with before. I pray you give us the power, the boldness, and the love to do that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.